The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. In for Scott Wapner, I am Tyler Matheson. It was the best August in decades, but August is over now. It is the first day of trading in September and the first day of September. Usually, September has been the worst month of the year for investors, so, so should you keep riding this red-hot summer rally or get ready for something a little less fulfilling? We will debate that with our investment committee today. And who are they? They are Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, and Pete Najarian. Welcome, everyone. Let's get a check on the markets before we kick it around a little bit. The S&P, the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100, all hitting new intraday all-time highs today. The NASDAQ, the biggest winner there. You see it up, uh, up more than three-quarters of a percent at 11.874 right now. The industrials also back on track today, up 65. Folks, let's kick it around a little bit. Is there any reason for worry, apart from the fact, Stephanie, that September historic has not been the best of months. I always worry about things. I think I worry when I don't worry, right? So um, I think just because you change months doesn't really change the narrative. And the narrative is, is that there are pockets of the economy that are doing well, that are recovering. Housing, auto, parts of consumer manufacturing. Did you see those numbers this morning? At the ISM, the new orders jumped five points. The ISM itself was the best number since November 2018. So manufacturing is absolutely recovering, and I would even argue is in a V recovery. But then, of course, you have pockets of the economy that are not doing well, that are struggling. We have a million jobs, uh, in initial claims rather, that uh, we keep getting every single week. Um, and that is not a good number to get. And that is why I think you're going to see a fiscal package. You also still have a lot of troubling things happening with regards to travel and leisure and, and restaurants and that sort of thing. So I do think that you get the fiscal package. I don't think this changes in terms of my investments because I think as you recover, the economy recovers, you get through the elections, I think profits recover and we can see next year even better profits. Josh, how about you? Uh, are you worried by valuations? We saw yesterday, uh, I think it was Tony Dwyer, basically throw up his hands and say, I can't even begin to predict uh, values because I can't even put a price target on the S&P because I can't predict what or even know what the valuations are. Are you concerned that the, that the runaway stocks, which have been growth and technology, will continue to be the market leaders and that the, that the leadership in the market is too narrow? Well, the leadership in the market by sector has actually been improving throughout the entire summer. 
So I don't, I don't know that it's too narrow in terms of where it's coming from. On an individual stock level, it's a little bit trickier, Tyler. But I would just say, if you, if you think about um, the, the way August ended, we go into September, we had new monthly closing highs in everything from consumer staples to healthcare to consumer discretionary to technology, obviously, to materials uh, and communication services. So this is like almost every important sector in the market all making new highs. Now, the counter to that is there are, a few, there are a handful of very large stocks in each of those sectors doing most of the heavy lifting. So I think we have to just take that for what it is and look at the bigger picture, which is, is the stock market in an uptrend or not? It's in an uptrend. Are new highs in the stock market bullish or bearish historically? They're bullish. New highs beget more new highs until they don't. But you can have decades where stocks make new highs uh, without a, a significant bear market. So if we're just thinking about weight of the evidence approach and we're just saying, what is the big picture? Um, the big picture is that stocks are going up, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Um, all of the things that Stephanie said about the economy are true. Um, but the market is eating that information on a, on a, on a minute by minute basis, putting it into its, uh, into its price and, and moving forward. And, and so that's, that's the way that I would think about what we're seeing right now as an investor. Jim, how do you react to, to what you've just heard? Uh, is there any sense in your world that this is, this is, a, this is a good party by any, by any stretch of the imagination, but that the party may be getting uh, toward the 11th hour? Yeah, well, look, what Josh and Stephanie just said, th those are factually correct statements. Uh, nonetheless, I do find myself worried. Um, I, I see a vulnerability that can be cured, and I'd like it to be cured. And that vulnerability is simply that if you look at uh, the, the leadership, notwithstanding that it has closed somewhat recently, it's still a, a pretty stark difference between the haves and the have-nots, and it's pretty concentrated. So, you know, the triple Qs year-to-date, NASDAQ 100, are up 38%. The S&P 500 equal weight is down 4% year to date, and that's the average stock experience, more or less. So it, it tells you that there is a, a concentration at the top, which also is measured, if you look at the S&P 500, the top five stocks are 26%, Apple alone is 7% of the market cap. Now here's why that matters. I don't think those leaders need to come down, and I hope they don't, but what would be healthy is to see some spreading out of the returns to the rest of the markets. The vulnerability of what I speak is that if those top five come down for whatever reason, and it could be any reason, it could be fundamental, it could be technical, it could simply be that there are no buyers left to buy those stocks. If they come down in a disorderly fashion, they're liable to bring the market overall down with it. So that's the situation I'd like to avoid. And the way to avoid that is to see some spreading out of the leadership so that the S&P 500 equal weight in particular starts to break into positive territory and close that gap with the NASDAQ 100. That's what I'm looking for. Pete, let's turn to two of the stocks that, that, were, that just come into the conversation. One would be Tesla. The other would be Apple. Uh, Wall Street continuing to bet on tech. They've raised their price target for Apple and Tesla. Apple's raised at B of A and, J and JP Morgan as it gets ready to release uh, 5G phones. Um, it feels to me like Apple is moving more on fundamentals and Tesla on future hopes. Am I right or wrong about that? Would you put money into these two market leaders? 
Uh, you're absolutely right about that. And, and as we look at those, obviously, I think that Apple obviously has had this huge run to the upside. We know that. And you look at the P.E. level versus the historical and you'd say, well, you know, Apple's starting to look a little bit pricey. I think the reality on, on Apple is when you really break it down, Tyler, what's impressive to me is where are they getting their growth from? Well, they're getting their growth from services as well as wearables. And if you add those two together, they're not terribly far behind in terms of revenue. Uh, for Apple in terms of uh, where, where they are with the iPhone itself, the hardware side of things. So Apple has been growing in the right places, and I think it's going to have to be revalued by folks. And I think a lot of us sitting here that own the stock uh, already understand that. It's going to be revalued as something different than what, it, what it's been in the past. On the other hand, when you look at something like Tesla, it's been on an unbelievable tear. We all know that. And there's a lot of different factors that are playing into this whole thing. But I've said this for a very long period of time. And Gene Munster, I got to give him all the credit in the world. He pointed out, he says, look, everybody thinks it's a car company. It's far more than a car company. That's one piece of it. But this is a company that's far more of an ecosystem that's being developed and growing out. And I think he's been ex exactly spot on on that. It's a tech company, really, in my opinion, with the hardware side. It's got the software side. They've got the data. They've got all these various things. But that doesn't mean it's not expensive. And it is. And there's no doubt about it. But I think those who have been fighting it are fighting the wrong battle. I think the reality is that there are ways that you can position yourselves in the markets in a much different way. And I'll give you a really quick example. The, the volume of the options yesterday after, after this split, you had Apple trading more than 2 million contracts yesterday. You had Tesla trading over 1 million contracts yesterday. That used to be the entire trading floor back when I started back in the early 90s in the options world. These two names, people are doing some very smart things, Tyler. I think you're seeing people position themselves more in the options, stock replacement type strategies, and taking off a little bit of their exposure on the stock just in case there is the pullback that Stephanie referred to that potentially we could see a pullback. And if and when we do, maybe they get out of those options and back into the stock. All right, let's uh, turn back to, to the question of, of where the money is going. Josh, you made something, made an interesting point earlier, and that was that you, you said that over the summer, the market has actually been broadening. Bank of America says money is moving into higher value stocks, such as financial and energy, though you wouldn't really know it from last month. Energy didn't do so well. Certainly, uh, uh, utilities didn't as well. Are you sensing a move more into value um, ETFs and value stocks as a, as a rule, and what does that tell you? No, I'm not. I think what actually is happening is that money is moving into the growthier uh, names within the different industry groups, and probably we need to throw out this value versus growth conversation. It's over. There's only one winner. Um, investors have made a preference that, regardless of industry, they want to own the names that are growing. So. We can look at sectors and say uh, financial and say, okay, most of the companies in that index qualify as value companies because they have depressed multiples, they're out of favor, low price to book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, honestly, that has not made anyone money in more than 10 years. What has made people money is said, okay, I'm going to own some financials. So which ones have the best growth prospects and which ones consistently execute and which ones don't? And if you oriented a portfolio that way, you actually have some returns to show for yourself. And, and, and I think that that is what uh, investors who are, are focused on returns and not dogma have done a really good job with. And that way you can own stocks in any uh, sector. And you don't have to classify things like, 
all right, financials are value and tech is growth. There are no growth tech companies. IBM is a $115 billion market cap. It's been that way for 10 years. Zoom just became a $130 billion market cap this morning. Zoom has been founded, uh, Zoom has been in business for 10 years. IBM's been in business for 110 years. So let's throw out the definitions, growth, value. Let's just say, okay, what areas of the market are working? What stocks within each industry group are worth owning? Mm -hmm. And if you've done that, you've, you, you've, you've not wasted a ton of time uh, on the things that aren't paying you at all. You know, Stephanie, uh, Josh makes a very interesting and, and, and nuanced point there. He says value in a conventional sense is over. Is it? Do you agree with that? Uh, and do you agree with Josh's point that there may be uh, financials may be value stocks, but you find what you want to do there is go with the growth uh, drivers within that category? Didn't, I didn't express that very well, but you get my point. I get your point. I get your point, Tyler. Um, I, I think you can own a combination. Um, first and foremost, I don't think value is dead. That, that's, I, don't think, I don't agree with that. But, and, it, and it's also whatever it is your definition Statist of value statistically, is. Statistically, it's dead. Statistically, it's dead. You may have, look, you know what? Like, if Warren Buffett even, thinks that Amazon is a value stock, that's a value stock. So I'm sorry, but no way. I mean, I will look oh, at so every industry. I will look at every stock. Just and quantitative, I will look and see, just quantitatively is it a relative speaking. value? Is it an app? Is it an absolute value? Is it a relative value? So no, I don't think that value is, is dead at all. I think you can own growth and value, but I would say I don't necessarily want to own value per se. I want to own cyclicals per se. And the reason I want to own cyclicals is because I made the case before that the economy is actually recovering and it's recovering faster than people think. And you've got a ton of money supply in the system. M2 at 30% is a huge, huge, huge number. And so that is going to be a nice tailwind. You get more fiscal package, then that's going to be a nice tailwind. And you're going to continue to see a recovery in the economy and then in profits. And you want to have stocks that are exposed to the economy. At the same time, I own these other names, these growth names, some of these FANG names. I don't own Zoom and I don't own Tesla. I can't get my arms around them. But I do own Apple and I do own Amazon and I do own Apps, uh, Google um, and Alphabet and, and plenty of names in there, Salesforce.com. So I think you could actually own a combination. At the end of the day, Tyler, it is a stock picker's market, and that's what I do. And sometimes I can find some real values, and sometimes I want to go with the momentum. Josh, a quick rejoinder, and then I'm going to bring Jim into the conversation. Yeah, so I'm not saying value is dead like you shouldn't buy undervalued stocks. I'm saying statistically, over the last five years, the S&P 500 is up 100% and value is up 50%. Um, you've, gotten, you've gotten absolutely killed in any scenario where you were selecting for cheap stocks versus stocks with earnings growth. Absolutely killed in large caps, in mid caps, in small caps, in finance, in tech. Name a version where selecting stocks based on valuation versus selecting stocks ba based on earnings growth has done anything for your portfolio. You can't because it doesn't exist. So that's not the same thing as saying you should only buy expensive stocks. I'm just pointing out that is the only thing that has actually uh, beaten the market and, and, and worked over the last five years. Will that change at some point? I'm sure it will. Do I know when? No, I don't. So statistically, it is undeniable that value has so substantially underperformed both growth and a core S&P 500 approach, like there's not even a contest anymore. You can't even see it 
um, on a on a performance chart. Jim, let me let me let you tie this part but of our conversation. But there are value stocks. Yeah. There are value stocks, Josh, in a growth industry. You can find bargains and you can find value in every single sector. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to be we totally agree. long and over the over your skis in growth, right? We, but we you agree. do. There, you've got to. You have we to agree. be valuation disciplined. Let, let, you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let me let me phrase it differently, because because we all know what both of you are saying, and Josh, you've been consistent on the message, and you've, you're factually correct. Stephanie, you know that what you're saying is something that I adhere to, but I think really a way of framing it, the way I look at it, is when you decide today what stock you're going to buy, you have to ask yourself what's priced in and what's not. Now. I'm saying this, I own a 6.5% position in portfolios in Apple, okay? It's a big position. But a dollar of money that comes in today, am I buying 6.5% of Apple or in that portfolio with it up 50% in a month? The answer is no. Not because I think it's poised for a crash, but because I think a lot of good news is priced into it. On the other hand, other allocations within the portfolio that I have to fill out are much easier to fill out. And since we're talking about the financials, that's a sector. It has a place in the portfolio. I have some growth. I have some value. That's easier to fill right now because so much bad news is priced into it, which speaks exactly to the performance of value versus growth. Over the last five years, the return of growth, large cap growth, is five times that of large cap value. It's a factual statement, but it doesn't necessarily inform what the next five months or five years are going to be. And it's much easier for me to say that too much good news is priced into Apple, and it's much easier for me to say that there's no good news priced into financials. It makes the decision of where to invest easier. You know, now, I'm talking I, about, I want to make this clear. Sure. I'm talking about investment, not speculation, not trading, not momentum. I'm talking about long-term multi-year investment. To button this up, what I take away from, from, from Josh and Stephanie is, is on Stephanie's part, uh, within growth, look for where the value is. And in Josh's case, he says, within value, look for where the growth is. I see th th them as sort of <laughs> the, the, the obverse of a coin there. I don't know whether that sums it up clearly yeah. for you guys, but... But but whatever. Let's let's pivot a little bit and put our money where our mouths have been and find out not what you own or have bought or sold lately, but what you've been watching or contemplating or thinking about doing uh, in your portfolios. What's on your buy list or your sell list? Why don't we start with you, Jim, on Visa? Yeah, well, look, Visa is one of these high-quality growth companies. I don't think its valuation is out of reach. Uh, I don't look at this and say I've got to hold my nose. So then the question is, why not buy it today? And the answer is simple. There is still a lot of wrangling left to do in Congress over the next phase uh, of the Stimulus Act. And consumption, which is obviously core to Visa, is dependent right now upon income replacement from the federal government for 15 million people who are unemployed. So as that wrangling goes on, particularly post Labor Day, I expect I'll have an opportunity around 200 to pick up Visa. Uh, and that's what I intend to do. Now, look, hopefully I can fund that with shares of Disney. Uh, you know, in the mid 130s, uh, post earnings, I looked at Disney and I said, you know, look, it's going to take a while for the streaming business, even though it's growing rapidly, to make money. And the theme parks and the studios, they're coming back, but not that fast. If you look at 2022 uh, earnings and do a sum of the parts analysis, I get to 143 as a sell target. Not far away. So hopefully, hopefully I can get those two uh, activities coincident with one another. Steph, you're looking to cut some exposure on one stock at uh, all-time highs and adding to another. Tell us about it. 
Yeah, so Home Depot, it kind of breaks my heart because I think they're doing such a good job and I think the management team is phenomenal. Um, and they really are so shareholder friendly in so many ways. But the stock's up 30, 30% year to date. It only yields about 2%. And, and it's trading at 26 times forward earnings. And what I think is happening with Home Depot is those earnings are sort of getting peakish because housing has recovered so much. So I'm not sure how much more upside we have. I think housing will remain strong and there's a multiplier effect and certainly you want to have exposure. But I would rather play Stanley Black and Decker because they have exposure to Home Depot and Lowe's um, and it's trading a lot cheaper and it's not up nearly as much. In fact, it's not even up year to date. Um, the other one that I'm looking at that seems to be really just disliked right now is McDonald's. It's only up 8% on the year. It has a 2.4% dividend yield and you, you look at the multiple at 33 times and and, and kind of worried because that's expensive. But on the flip side to Home Depot being at the peak, I think McDonald's is at the trough in terms of their earnings because I do think eventually you're going to reopen and these guys will benefit pretty substantially. They're doing a very good job on product innovation and they're doing what they can do in terms of digital and, and, and investments on the technology front. So I think that um, you're going to slowly see a, an improvement. So I want to wait for the stock maybe to pull back a little bit um, or, or just watch it for the time being. But this is one that's definitely on my radar. All right, Pete, uh, I can't tell whether these are stocks you like or products you want to buy. Uh, but both. tell us about <laughs> both uh, Polaris and Malibu yeah. boats. Yeah. Well, Tyler, as we know, going through this pandemic, these names have absolutely skyrocketed. I mean, what they've seen in terms of sales is extraordinary. There's no doubt about that. And I've been in these names. I've been in Mastercraft. I've been in Polaris. I have not been in Malibu Boats, but I missed that one. I caught the other two, but now I'm looking for the opportunity. I would love to see the opportunity rise with some selling out of either of those names, but they have... They've certainly performed unbelievably well. All three names have per performed incredibly well. And I just think the opportunity is there. And so those are names that I'm waiting for the opportunity if we get some sort of a sell-off. If we see anything like a 10% move to the downside or something close to it, 5 10%, I think these names will be along on that side of it. And I still look at their earnings going forward and what their exposure is. I love the products. I love the companies. I think they trade inexpensively. And I think there's going to be an opportunity still. But I don't want to be out there right now where they're virtually trading near their 52-week highs right now. All right, we'll watch for a pullback in those two names, Polaris and Malibu Boats. Uh, you know, one of the subtexts of our conversation today has been whether uh, the economy's functioning justifies the stock market's uh, high levels. Let's bring in Steve Leisman now with some new clues about the health of the American economy as we are, Steve, on the precipice of a jobs report later this week. Yeah, Tyler, I listened to the conversation and... Um you know, I don't want to insult everybody on the panel, but I worry that um, they're riding a wave of liquidity and looking down for support in the fundamentals of the economy uh, and, and sort of grasping some, somewhat at straws. I, I see a very different world out there than the ones that they see. I, I get that there is uh, something of a manufacturing rebound going on. It looks like the data is uh, is helped by, by reopening of manufacturing plants. Uh, and, and that's something that, that is expected to fade, at least that initial surge. You, you had 1 million people file for claims. You're expecting a 9.9% unemployment rate, which means that some 15 million Americans will still be unemployed, which is double the peak of the last recession. Uh, you did have the ISM come out today, but the employment numbers showed contraction. Again, uh, you have a lot of companies that are doing well earnings-wise, uh, seem to be doing so by laying off people. So uh, I just worry that, that what's powering the stock market is more liquidity than fundamentals. Uh, if you look at the one piece of data that we have, uh, uh, one piece that we're looking at for uh, the jobs number, the Kronos um, 
time shift management company. Uh, they 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 uh, they do that electronically. Up just 0.3%. Guys, if you wouldn't mind going to that last chart that I have there, I just want to do talk about that. It did a very good job of forecasting the last three really beats uh, by by the jobs numbers. And now it's looking for 1.2 million. This is painfully slow process in bringing the economy back. I think Stephanie's right. I think everybody in the panel is right. The economy will come back, but th there's an awful lot of pain. And this chart right here that you're looking at now, Tyler, it shows you that the states with high unemployment claims, the, the JP Morgan is finding less spending growth there than in states with, with lower unemployment claims. And that's showing that that stimulus has run off and is beginning to have an effect on the economy. So I'm just a little more guarded in terms of the, the uh, gaining my sense of optimism from the heights of the market. So let me, let me come back to what you said at the, at the start of your um of your essay there, and that was that the, that the market seems to Sorry be. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's what we wanted. Uh, was the idea that that the market is riding a wave of of liquidity that's been put out there uh, by the Federal Reserve. So implicit in that is that the economy isn't as healthy as we would like to think it is. Is is have I got you right? Yeah, and, and, and let me just make a quick separation between the momentum, which I think is what the traders are, are, are almost certainly focused on, and that's fair enough, versus the sort of absolute values. The absolute values in some cases are, are kind of horrendous, right? Um, you know, you would have sold everything and gone to the hills, Tyler, if I told you a million people were filing for unemployment claims. That's what happened last week. 15 million people remain unemployed for a 9.9. .9. I don't want to repeat myself, but but some of those fundamentals are absolute horrendous, are absolutely horrendous. Well, and when you look at towns, let me turn to you, Josh, to get your re your re reaction to what Steve has just said, and then we'll, we'll go around the horn. Uh, when you look at towns that I've been in, you see an awful lot of for rent signs. You see an awful lot of space available signs. Uh, these are small businesses that have just packed up and left, uh, and they're not just in uh, the, the hospitality trade at all. And that means that workers are not getting paychecks. It means that evictions and uh, delinquencies will, will inevitably ramp up as we move into the fall and uh, that can't be good I mean maybe the big the big uh, tech companies are doing just fine uh, but there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff underneath uh, those that seem in distress Josh you know this is to me the, the worst part of, of the pandemic era that we're living through other than the health consequences for people who have gotten the virus um, this is really the worst part which is that we report how many people are jobless, but the reality is the people who are hardest hit, the professions and, and the jobs that are hardest hit are the ones that really have the least consequence for Fortune 500 companies and the types of products and services they sell. Bingo. And you, you, look at the num you, you look at the numbers, people working in low you know, for low-income wages, um, in, in careers or, or um, professions that were already precarious leading up to this, people who already were struggling to make ends meet, that's who got hit. We are not seeing this wave of white-collar uh, pink slips, and that's what separates this from the previous recession. I just spent the last week up in Maine. Um, we, we talked about like travel and leisure being hard hit. You, you charter a fishing boat. You say to the guy, are you busy? He goes, I have never been this busy. I have to buy a second boat. Then you do a bike tour of Portland, Maine. The guy tells you, 
I'm sold out the entire summer. I have to hire more guides to give these bike tours. So how is that consistent with what the airlines are saying? The answer is it's not. So it's, it's, it's a, a very nuanced situation. It's probably the only recession in the history of America that coincided with the housing boom. And if you just look at the aggregate numbers, it makes no sense. How could you lose 18 million jobs and have home prices go up 30% a month later? It makes no sense at all. And so that's why I think it's very important we don't paint this thing with too broad a brush. And we understand the fact that while the numbers are horrific for small businesses closing and for people losing jobs, in reality, those are not high-paying jobs that have been lost so far. And those are not small businesses that were very important to larger businesses who cater to them. And for as long as that remains the case, um, quite frankly, the only thing saving these people is going to be continued fiscal stimulus. It has to happen. We must rescue these people because Facebook, Google, you name it, Apple, they're all marching on as though nothing ever happened. It is a parade um, of, of corporate cash flows literally trampling on people um, who just don't seem to matter anymore. And I hate that that's the case, and, and that's why I think we really have to look at this in a very nuanced way um, and not talk hey, about v broadly. Yeah, sure. Please. Josh? Uh, yeah, Ty oh. Tyler, uh, just, I, there's some parts of the economy that are feeling deep effects of this that have not shown up in either the economic or profit statistics. And these are things that, we, that play exactly into what Josh is saying as far as the need for fiscal support. But specifically, I'm talking about municipalities, which have in large cases been decimated, whether it's tax revenue, uh, whether it's fare box revenue at commuter railroads, bus lines, et cetera. And these are major employers that have still kept uh, their employees on for the most part. They also spend on CapEx. Uh, that needs support. What also is going to be in trouble is commercial real estate. I mean, we're talking about the benefits here of work from home, whether we see it in Zoom, whether we see it in Amazon or Apple. And, you know, ultimately, and this is years down the line, but ultimately leases come due for renewal. There's just no way in the current environment that they're going to be renewed at the same rate and for the same volume of square feet right. uh, as they have been in the past. That is something that has to be dealt with. Uh, and, it, and there's no talk of it, no talk of it whatsoever as far as a, a, a knock-on effect down the I line. Give, I want to give Steve the last word <laughs> here, but Josh, I just spent uh, much of the last uh, few weeks this summer, a place you know well, Point Lookout, New York, and, and the people out there, I couldn't rent a boat. They, they, they were booked. There was nothing to take. The bicycle store was, they had no inventory. It's the whole thing. But, but what I drew from that was, the, was not a, a message that, that the economy is necessarily healthy, but that people on their vacations were staying closer to home. They weren't going out of state. They were, because if they went out Shifting of state, what they spend if, on. If they went right. out of state, then they would have to come back and and presumably quarantine for a good long time. So I think you're I think you're right. Those areas have not fallen off. There, there's a lot of stuff going on, but it's choices that are being made of people who are staying close to home and 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 taking those services. Steve, go ahead, jump in. T Tyler? Yeah, go ahead. Ty Steph. Tyler, can I just, can I just, so Steve, you know this as an, a long-term investor. You mentioned liquidity. So as an investor, you also know that you don't fight the Fed, that old adage. It, 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 there's a reason that people say that, because it actually is a huge tailwind. And the amount of liquidity in the system 
both monetary and fiscal, you very well know, is 44% of U.S. GDP. And that is a huge, huge number, and that's something not to fight. So I will absolutely agree with you that there are pockets of the economy that are not doing well. I mentioned at the, at the start of the show, it's an uneven economy, but there are winners and losers. And as an investor, where, am I, where do I go? I'm looking for the winners, and I'm looking for where the winners are underappreciated at this point. So I just wanted to throw that out there because you had mentioned it's liquidity. Fair enough. And you're I, right. It, look, it is liquidity. The, final quick thought, the, Steve. The first, the, first, the first and most important response I have is that you're all invited on my boat. I have a 23-foot, very basic um, center console boat, and it's a fishing machine. And you guys want to catch fish, come out on my boat, forget these other guys. It's free. That's one. Two is that it, 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 it's, it's eyes wide open in this economy. There's a lot going on, a lot of disparity in the economy. Uh, and, and people need to be very aware of what they're investing in. And the concern I have, the long-term concern when I look at the public companies, is, is what they are doing to remain profitable and meet the high expectations of the uh, very fine people on this panel as investors, is what they're doing ultimately going to erode the economy in terms of job cuts and CapEx cutbacks. That's something down the road that I have concern about. But if it's eyes wide open, everybody have a great time. All right, uh, Steve Leisman, thanks very much. Thanks very much to the panel. You'll be with us. I, I said to Prashant Patel, our, our executive producer today, that I was going to go for the longest A block in uh, halftime history. <laughs> we have just done that, ladies and gentlemen. 32 minutes of meat and potatoes right there. And we're going to give you more. Check out shares of Zoom on the back of its blowout earnings, up 40% right now. The stock is now up almost 600% this year. Can it go higher from here? We'll debate that one. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go, on the app, CNBC app, halftime. What's left of it is back after this. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Welcome back to the Halftime Report, everybody. Let's get some headlines with Sue Herrera. Sue. Hello, Ty. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. In New York, the mayor and the education unions have struck a deal to delay the start of in-person classes by 11 days to allow more time for safety preparations. That move averts a potential strike over the issue. You can go to CNBC.com for more on that story. In Israel, classes beginning today with an estimated 2.4 million students returning to school. Across Europe, millions more are also heading back to the classroom. Here at home in Portland, Oregon, demonstrators held the 95th consecutive night of protests, repeating calls for the mayor to resign in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Police declared a riot after protesters set a small fire in the street and then broke windows. And in Washington, the White House is reopening its doors to the public. Tours will resume September 12th with all visitors over the age of two required to wear face coverings. You are up to date. That's the news update, Ty. I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. It has been, of course, a huge quarter for Zoom 
beating on the top and bottom line in a big way, plus a 30% increase in its revenue forecast. The stock uh, almost 40% uh, higher today, as you see it adding $125 a share. Check out this staggering stat. Zoom now has a market value of about $130 billion, compared with just $19 billion at the start of the year. It is bigger now than IBM and AMD. Josh, you own it. Yeah, so Zoom is one of those companies where we talked about value versus growth. Imagine how many people looked at this thing when it was 20 times sales and dismissed it, or looked at its PE ratio and dismissed it, and then it goes from 70, 75-ish um, to 400 and change, and it turns out that investors were correctly estimating the growth potential of a situation where one company practically single-handedly saves the, the, the country's economy. And that's the story with Zoom, whether it's school districts or corporations. So all of the um, embedded expectations that were in that high uh, price-to-sales ratio or whatever you were looking at now are coming true a few months later. The second quarter was absolutely explosive. They have a, a 1,000 corporate customers who pay them more than $100,000 annually. They have 370,000 corporate customers with more than 10 employees. Um, most of the kids going back to school are doing some version of hybrid. A, a lot of that is happening, either Google Classroom or Zoom. Um, and Zoom is now a, a verb. It's a noun. It's part of the, the, the lexicon. And they did that almost overnight. So um, I, I, I'm in the stock. I took my original cost out of it. It's all house's money. That's the only way I can get my mind around holding something with this high of a beta and this much risk. But I will not sell it, and uh, I expect volatility going forward in both directions. And I'm perfectly fine with it it's, because I think Zoom is here to stay. To your point, it's amazing how Zoom has become a verb. It was a stock and a company that very few of us had heard of a year ago. And they outflanked other large incumbent companies like Microsoft, like Google, that had similar products out there, or Cisco that had similar products, but they were the ones to do it. Anyhow, we take that as an endorsement and a hold uh, from you, at least, Josh, uh, of what you've got in that stock. Let's bring in uh, Rahel Solomon with a number of calls out in the food space. Rahel. Hi, Tyler. I hope you are hungry because I have quite the lineup for you. Raymond James, let's start with them. Quite a bit of action in the restaurant space. So they're downgrading Brinker International Pointing out that the stock is trading at multiples that reflect pre-COVID levels. Worth noting here that the stock is up about 5% from a new 52-week high. They're also downgrading Darden restaurants to outperform from strong buy, but raising the price target here. So this is, Tyler, actually one of their top quality long picks. But they feel like in the near term, Olive Garden will continue to lag the broader industry. Also at Ray J, an upgrade for Bloomin' Brands. Rating goes to strong buy from outperform. They note it's improving comps, and they have solid performance compared to its peers. Blumen, by the way, also getting an upgrade to buy from hold at Deutsche Bank, this time on average unit volume and improving margins. And finally, Credit Suisse is initiating coverage of Snacks brand Uts with an outperform rating and a $19 price target here. Analysts think significant cost-saving opportunities will be reinvested to drive growth and margins. The company had already been seeing steady growth of 8% a year, and then that grew to 11% in the first half of the year, as many of us stay home and snack more. Tyler, are you hungry yet? <laughs> I am. I'm starving. I'll see you in about an hour, Rahel. Yes, you will. On Power Lunch. All right, Pete is seeing some unusual activity in the options market. His latest trades are next. But first, let's get a check on the S&P sector heat map. 
There you see it. Half are up, half are slightly down. Halftime is back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. Shares of Taiwan Semiconductor have surged nearly 60% over the past three months, and bullish options traders are jumping into the name. Pete, what are you seeing there? Well, it's pretty interesting, Tyler, because of the fact that if you go back to May, it's a $50 stock. You go into July, it was in the 60s, and then now it's been trading in August in the 80s. And today, they're starting to reach out a little bit, but very short term. These are going to expire Friday, so they're buying the September 4 expiring 83 calls. And as a matter of fact, they bought 5,000 of those, Tyler, for approximately 50 cents. The stock at the time trading just under 81. It was about 80.70. So this is a very short-term trade. You just have to be very aware of that. This is going to happen very quick. Either it's going to work or it's going to not. So we'll see. I got another one that's short-term. Netflix. Now, Netflix is another interesting one. They have continued to buy, 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 buy. Yesterday, they were buying the 550 strike. Today, they're buying the September, this Friday expiring, September 4th, the 560 strike calls. And the stock at the time was trading just underneath that level. So it's it's kind of interesting to see where we are right now and what they're going to go with that. But uh, they were buying them for 450 up to 750 on those options. So not a cheap option. They do expire Friday. I just can't you know, bring that up enough because this is very, very short term. Almost like everything we've been seeing recently, Tyler, very short term. One week, two week. This is just a one week option. They expire Friday. All right. Thanks very much, Pete. Uh, and Walmart and Amazon both hitting new all-time highs. How to play these two names from here. We'll be back in two minutes. Walmart and Amazon hitting new all-time highs. Walmart unveiling its answer to Prime. It's called Walmart Plus. And Pete, you just bought some Walmart calls today. I did. As a matter of fact, in August, Tyler, when the stock was starting out at about 131, they started buying calls and they've been rolling and rolling and rolling. And today they're rolling again. And these are very short term again. I, I mentioned that earlier with the unusual, but they're buying this Friday's expiring 150 strike calls. Stock was about 145 at the time. So this happened about an hour or two ago. Aggressive buying, though, 12,000 of those calls trading. So Again, positioning once again, this is a trade. This is not an investment. I think it's a little bit frothy right now, but that doesn't mean the stock can't explode and get up through 150 before maybe we see some sort of a pullback. How long do you expect to be in this position? 
Oh, very short term. They expire Friday, so I won't be in there past Friday. I own those calls just exactly like the ones that they were buying. But uh, I, I, I like what uh, we see out of Walmart. We obviously know the numbers, like especially versus Target. They're ex outstanding. But I still think the multiple is a little bit too high right now for Walmart. So this will be a very short-term hold. All right, thanks. Uh, Steph, you own Amazon and thanks. have uh, some perspective on Walmart's move. Tell us what it is. Yeah, so I do own Amazon. First and foremost, retail e-commerce is a $3.5 trillion total addressable market as of the end of last year, and it's growing to $6.5 trillion in the next two years. So I think that the playground is big enough for both companies, and many companies, by the way. I think that's why Amazon has done so well, right, because they're the leader. But um, it's, it's interesting. As soon as I saw the Walmart news, I worried more about Costco because 75% of their revenues is membership-based, and I wonder if you see some of the customers leave Costco to go to Walmart. But I kind of I I think it's a different clientele. I do think that uh, Target, they're kind of on an island on their own. Um, it is cheaper than Walmart, but they've been doing such a good job in terms of investing in R&D and in digital. And it paid off in spades last quarter. So I still think Target is a winner here. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if they announced something like this down the road as well. Very interesting. Okay, thank you, Steph. Thank you, Pete. And we've got more trades ahead on halftime. And as we go to a break, why don't you take a look at some of the stocks hitting all-time highs today. Nike. The aforementioned Costco, deer, running like a deer. We're back in two minutes. Time now for Futures Outlook. Platinum Futures higher today, but in the red still for the year. Let's bring in Bill Baruch of Blue Line Futures and Brian Stutland of Equity Armor Investments. Bill, I'll begin with you. Any interest in platinum these days? You know what? I like to look at platinum as a way to play uh, weakness in the precious metal sector. Now, Platinum recovered all of its losses from March, but it could not get out of above this 1040 resistance level it dates back to 2017. Gold and silver, looking back the last three to five years, they've broken out above those and record highs in gold. So I, I like to look at, as I'm enthusiastic, gold to, to sell rallies in Platinum. And if you look at the recent range, the low of 900, all the way up to that high, about 1040, you got a 50% retracement at 970. That was hit today. It's a great spot to fade it. And if it breaks below 900 we could see at least another 50 bucks going as there's a good trend line as you see in the chart from the march lows that come in about right around 900 so bill is fading the rally brian what would you do well i think the reason for the lag here when you look at the fundamentals is that platinum is really tracked well and correlated to large cap value and as we know that's lagged the stock market so i think all that is tied how open is our economy? As the economy starts to open up, we've seen large cap value rise. We've seen platinum rise. So I think that trend continues. If you really believe we get to a point where we're fully open again and large cap value is a play for people, then platinum probably goes higher here. But until that happens, you're going to continue to see the lag despite a weak U.S. dollar obviously giving headwinds to all the metals here. Huge inflows into all the ETFs and on the metal space. So there is some you know tailwind behind it, but there is a reason why platinum has lagged as Bill has mentioned, and that's and that's probably one more tied to the economy than some of the other metals like gold and silver. The killer bees, Brian, Bill, thanks very much. We appreciate your uh, thoughts today. Final trades are straight ahead on the Halftime Report. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. Well, J.P. Morgan is out with its best ideas for the new trading month, adding Thermo Fisher Scientific to its focus list. The stock is up more than 30 percent this year. And, Jim, you own it. This must be good news yeah, to I've you. I've owned it for about two months, Tyler. Yep. 
Owned it for about two months. Look, I think this is a very good stock. Uh, it's in the reagents, chemicals, and laboratory equipment space. So this plays into more medical testing, more drug discovery, which if anybody thinks those are not growth industries, I don't know what to say to you. They are. Um, a 26 times multiple, and you think about what's priced into that, priced into that is a PEG ratio, price earnings to growth ratio of two. And in this low interest rate environment, that's cheap for a company that's growing like this, well run, they make acquisitions from time to time, good company. All right, fantastic. Let's get some final trades, and because I'm drunk with power, I get to choose who goes first, and it will be Josh today. <laughs> I just want to mention Starbucks uh, having another good day. Stock's been going up since they reported earnings. It is about to go positive on year. It's only down 1% year to date, and I think that'll flip, challenge the old highs between 90 and 100. I'm long. I think it's going to work. Thank you very much for Starbucks. Uh, Pete, you go next. All right, I'm going to give you Camping World, our good friend, the oh. prophet, Marcus Limonis. Ever since the stock dropped, Tyler, from 42 back down when they had a secondary out there, around 33, they started buy he started buying. And he has bought every day since August 10th another chunk of stock. So whenever I see insiders buying, it tells me one thing. He thinks the stock is too cheap, and he's willing to buy, and he's been buying every single day. Steph, your turn. Nike, if you look at Foot Locker, Dix, even Under Armour, who's in a world of hurt, all reported better than expected numbers. I think Nike's going to have a good set, uh, has a good setup into the print. Last quick word to you, Jim. Qualcomm, 5G leader with a peg ratio below one. Folks, thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. That does it for Halftime. The Exchange with Bill Griffith begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.